Well, good morning, everyone. My name is David Spielman, and welcome to the International Food Policy Research Institute. It's a pleasure to have you here on a Tuesday morning be before one of our longest holiday breaks in the United States. Um, many of you online may not be aware of that, but uh, a few of us are here today. Many of us are already disappearing for the holidays. Um, but that said, this is a great topic to be talking about today. I'm glad you've all come uh, this morning, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to a really rich discussion. So in the past decade, information and communications technologies have really taken a front seat in the discussions about how to advance Africa's agri-food systems and its development, um, and to create more productive, sustainable, and equitable states of existence. Today, we see entire digital ecosystems emerging and evolving to offer smallholder farmers, food insecure consumers, and nascent agribusinesses with the data, the tools, and the opportunities that didn't exist even a decade ago. It's quite amazing what's going on. New digital technologies, products, and services are already making an impact on how we think about food and how we think about agriculture and how food, agricultural products, and commodities are being produced, processed, marketed, traded, and consumed across the continent. We see this in the digitalization of information provided to farmers on crop and natural resource management practices, on linkages between farmers and commercial actors uh, to provide greater access to, to markets and price information. Uh, we see it in financial and business development services for rural enterprises. And we see it in the sort of the back-end data analytics uh, for agricultural production forecasting, research or R&D priority setting, and investment planning. But the success of digitalization in Africa is necessarily constrained by the availability, quality, uh, connectivity, content, and capacity, right? And it's constrained by a lack, I would say, a growing body of evidence, but still a lack of evidence on the impacts of digital solutions how they work, who they work for, who they benefit, who doesn't benefit, who's in, who's out, issues like that. That means we do need to care about how African countries position themselves to harness and deploy digital technologies, because that'll determine the future competitiveness of, agricultural, uh, Af of Africa's agriculture and its contribution to African economies. So I'm not gonna go on too long. That's just a brief introduction. We have a great panel with us today. Uh, let me introduce them and then turn it directly over to them. Our first speaker is Usman Badjan. He's a dear friend and colleague of mine. He's the director for Africa here at IFPRI. He oversees the Institute's two regional offices for West and Central Africa in Dakar and Eastern and Southern Africa in Addis Ababa. He coordinates IFPRI's work program in the areas of food policy research, capacity strengthening, and policy communication in Africa. And he's also in charge of our partnerships with Africa's various uh, institutions. He's also co-chair of the Malabo Montpellier panel pr program and process, jointly with Professor Joachim von Braun, our former director general. Uh, Katrin Gletzel is the program head of the Malabo Montpellier panel. She's been based at IFPRI's office in Dakar, Senegal, since 2017, together with her teams at IFPRI, uh, Imperial College, and the University of Bonn leading research and writing the panel's reports and briefing papers, and working with members of the panel to deliver expert advice to African governments. Debisi Araba is the Africa Director for the International Center for Tropical Agriculture, SIAT, based in Nairobi. 
Uh, he's a member of the Malabo Montpellier panel and was previously the senior technical advisor on environmental policy to the Minister of Agriculture and Rural Development in Nigeria, our friend uh, and colleague, Akina Desina, who's now at the African Development Bank. And he was a team leader for environmental and climate change uh, in the ministry. Fun fact, Patron and Debisi both did their PhDs at the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London uh, and overlapped for several months. Good to know. And finally, Farbod Youssefi. Farbod is a program coordinator with the Global Engagements Unit in the Agriculture and Food Global Practice at the World Bank. The names and titles keep changing in the bank, but we try to keep up with them. He coordinates the work of the Enabling the Business of Agriculture uh, team. And many of you probably use it. I know I use it. Uh, it's a great resource to understand uh, what's going on in the agricultural sector from a commercial perspective uh, and a regulatory perspective. He previously worked with several organizations, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Food Logistics Organization, and the Post-Harvest Education Foundation. So with that, let me turn it over to my colleague, Usman, uh, and we'll proceed. Each speaker has about 10 minutes, all right? And then we'll go to Q&A. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Very good. All right. Um, good morning, uh, everyone, and thank you for coming uh, to today's policy seminar. Um, my uh, intervention is going to help set the background of, of what we do uh, and how it's uh, um, guided the work that's going to be uh, presented uh, in this report. So to say, to give you the angle uh, of the report uh, and I think make it uh, easier for uh, our colleagues to, to connect their message. Uh, we, around the Malabo Montpellier panel, work primarily around the issue of policy innovation, which is basically uh, what IFRI would like to, to facilitate. Um, why do we think that policy innovation is today possible in Africa and learning is important for that? It's because uh, if you look at the last two decades, uh, those of my age uh, will think one or two decades prior to the last two decades. You look around Africa, everything was flat or declining. There was no movement up anywhere. You may have one or two countries that are doing well. But over the last two decades, you have a critical mass of countries growing at higher rates, uh, sustained for two decades. Uh, obviously, there's a lot that's going right in many different places. And out of that lot that's going right in so many different places, there must be lessons that can be learned to accelerate the pace of growth. Uh, because of all the um, uh, progress that is needed uh, to be made in Africa. So in the next couple of slides, i just review why we think that there is a mine somewhere for very useful and practical lessons for policymakers everywhere uh, across Africa. Uh, over the last couple of decades, uh, African countries are spending more for agriculture than they have uh, done before, almost doubling annual outlays for agriculture. Agriculture gross domestic products has grown by two-thirds. Uh, whether you are looking at uh, poverty or malnutrition, there's been also a significant uh, improvement uh, across the continent. The share of population under poverty has decreased by 36%, uh, the level of malnutrition by between 20 and uh, 43%. Uh, 
you look at the uh, progress in terms of agricultural publication, I'm um, sorry, agricultural production, I do pretty well, I think about publication. So, <laughs> so you look at agricultural uh, production and the index, this is really the reverse of what we used to see in the 80s and the 90s, the African lines at the bottom, all other lines on the top. Now, in terms of expansion of agricultural output, Africa is leading the world uh, uh, and has been doing so uh, since 2000. Uh, so, obviously, something has been going right. But why can't we be complacent and just look at those good trends and be happy is that something happened, as I said, in the 70s and 80s. And that is, uh, um, this is a pointer, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, whoop. Oh, does how it look? Wow, okay. <laughs> so, you look in the 60s, Africa did extremely well. Nobody worried about Africa in the 60s. They're growing and so the worry was about Asia and so on. And suddenly everything fell apart, like you know, Achebe in Nigeria would say. So the 70s and 80s, <laughs> Africa just was, was going, you know, really, really down the drain. So we started going up after that. Now, the reason why we really have to be still asking for better and more positive change is that we have lost these two decades, such that although we're growing faster here, we are way below where we should have been. And just making this cup is going to take another generation. So no good performance is going to be good enough for us. So what can we do to accelerate, therefore, uh, where we are here today? Uh, and where we are looks like this. Uh, the level of undernourishment uh, is still uh, unacceptably high in Africa. So therefore, although you're growing fast and faster than the rest of the world, there's quite a lot that you need to do. So uh, we therefore think that if you could mine the information around the progress over the last 20 years and figure out exactly what worked where, uh, then we should be able to facilitate innovation at scale which is only possible at the highest level. Uh, if you're a minister, a permanent secretary, or a prime minister, you want to do something and you want it, you get the authority, the resources, and uh, the manpower to go to scale. But at that level, uh, where you uh, can get things adapted faster, implemented at scale, and be transformative, at that level as well, you know that when you fail, the costs politically and financially are high. So that's why a lot of these leaders are very reluctant to engage in major things. Uh, many of us have sat across the table uh, speaking to a minister or a person at that level about a great idea, and they will ask you immediately, where has it worked? Who has done that? Where and how? So that is the question we're anticipating now with the work of the Malabo Montpellier partner. How can we look at specific areas where we think progress is possible and has been demonstrated in Africa and answer the question by showing those leaders where, what, and how things have worked on the ground. So that if they want to do it, they have a, self, a sense of comfort to do that. So therefore, what we do about whether it's digitalization or nutrition or mechanization or energy, whatever it is, we want to understand positive change on the ground, find out where progress is taking place, understand what works, why it works and how it works. Then we take that information and see how we can learn from it. Good practices in terms of program design, implementation, and take it into a platform where then people at the highest level can look at it and learn from it. 
Now, we focus on three things, and that's important, and you'll see this in the report. Uh, we focus on government action. Uh, you can look at any topic from so many different angles. Uh, why does digitalization work? What are the costs? What are the benefits? Uh, who loses? Who gains? What are the obstacles? You can do all of that. And a lot of people are doing it, but we've chosen to do one thing that will respond to the question a minister would have, where has it worked and how and why? So we look at three things. All things that a government can do at a sign of a pen, which is institutional innovation. They can create institutions. They can modify institutions. So what are the institutional innovations that countries that have made progress have made? What are the policy changes that countries have enacted in order to be able to make progress in a specific area, and what are the interventions they carried out. All those things a minister, prime minister, or permanent secretary uh, could, could carry out. So you see a lot of that uh, in, in, in the reports that are coming. So we have um, done several reports. This is our report number four. We did one on nutrition, one on mechanization, one on irrigation. And once we do that, we organize a panel, a forum, where we invite uh, permanent secretaries, ministers of the top leading countries, and then other sets of ministers and permanent secretaries together around the table to exchange basically, how did you do it, why did you do it, why did it work, how did it work, and so on and, uh, and so forth. So um, the um, panel members are displayed here. We are about uh, 18 or 17 of us, 80% of, of us are from, from Africa. So. Um, Katrin is going to guide you to the first part of the digitalization report, which looks at all the issues around the topic. And uh, after that, uh, our colleague DBC is going to go now to the lessons of what we think is possible uh, to, uh, to, to move uh, the needle in the area of digitalization. So as part of facilitating, therefore, policy innovation, we do two things, uh, actually three. So we look at a report, I'm sorry, a, them a, a thematic area, we rank African countries, we take the top six or seven, and we look at what they do right in terms of institutional innovation, policy change, and programmatic interventions. We put that in a report, then we take the report through the Malabo Montpellier Forum, which has the same name as the Malabo Montpellier panel, and that's where they invite ministers and permanent secretaries and others to discuss the results. But because the report is concise, and because the forum with ministers is, is limited, we had a third product, which are webinar series. So we do two reports a year, two forum meetings at that level a year. Then the webinars are two every trimester. And what we do with the webinars is to answer now the practical operational issues. We'll pick somebody on digitalization, put him or her around the mic, and then get people around the world to ask questions. How did you do this? Why did you do it? How did it work? Uh, the first one we did on nutrition, for example, um, the questions that come up, just so that you know how those webinars go, uh, they were asking uh, the person from Senegal, wait a minute, Senegal went from about $200,000 a year in nutrition to $3 million. How did you convince them to finance to do it within a couple of years? Okay, or you sit in Dakar, your little cell unit in the prime minister's office, how do you deliver at community level? How do you procure service? Very, very practical hands-on question. So that on the one end, we have a summary of where progress is possible. We have the highest leadership to be uh, uh, sensitized that progress is possible. Then we get a pro uh, operational people to exchange in terms of how to do things on the ground. So thank you very much.
Thank you, Osman, and good morning, everyone. Um, so, as Osman said, um, we as the MAMO panel um, published a report back in July um, named Bite by Bite, which essentially focuses on the benefits and the challenges of digitalization in the agriculture system and for the food system as a whole. And um, in this report, we were also keen to find out what did countries do right, um, what did they do in terms of institutional and policy innovation and in interventions on the ground. Um, but before DBC talks about the country-level experience, I would like to talk you through um, the broader bulk of the report, so the benefits and opportunities we identified, but also talk you through some of the risks and limitations of digitalization. Um, so many of you might be familiar with this, and this slide shows the digital landscape um, as we know it at the moment. You can see that in the agriculture sector, but it also applies to other sectors of the economy. So at the bottom, um, you have digital infrastructure, and that can be anything, including laws and regulations, um, last mile infrastructure, such as um, electricity <coughs> provision, um, access to the internet, affordability, um, etc. Usually those are provided by governments, so the public sector, but increasingly you also see a mix of public-private partnerships. Um, at the next level, so in the purple bar, you see digital platforms. And digital platforms, um, they essentially collate information, they promote um, broader access and use of information, um, and um, facilitate a wide range of um, use of different um, digital services. So the best known platform in Africa would, for example, be M-Pesa, but there's also others such as Apollo Agriculture, um, Android, Uber, etc., and Pula, for example. And then on top of that, in the small blue hexagons, you see digital services. Um, and these range from e-commerce and e-business, such as Jumia. You have in online information services, such as online agriculture libraries, and the provision of sensors, satellites, and robotics um, that facilitate um, work of agriculture value chain actors, for example. Um, one example is the Nigerian startup Zenvis. Then you have mobile apps such as Farm Crowdy, Hello Tractor, Farm Drive that many of you will have heard of. And then finally, you have the social media platforms such as Twitter or WhatsApp or Facebook that are increasingly used for sharing information. Now, what are the benefits of digitalization in the agriculture sector? So why would countries want to digitalize? Um, so as we all know, some of the key constraints to um, that slow agricultural growth and transformation in Africa are infrastructural, technological, and institutional. And through digitalization, um, these barriers can be overcome um, at scale in shorter time and also at lower cost. Um, so digitalization can, if done right, um, help overcome geographic, social and economic isolation that many smallholders, farmers in Africa find themselves in. Um, it can help to share information faster and also more cost effectively. Um, it can also help to increase productivity faster and more sustainably at scale. And finally, it can help to link smallholder farmers more effectively into all segments of the agriculture value chain. So in the report, we took a value chain approach. So we looked at what are the opportunities at each segment of the value chain. 
and this is what I'd like to do over the next few slides, just talk you through very briefly um, what are some of the benefits. So at the very initial stage, um, so the planning stage, um, digitalization can help um, provide more timely and accurate information um, that help farmers plan better. So for example, there are many apps and digital services that um, provide weather forecasts. Um, so this helps farmers um, make better informed decisions on when to sow their seeds, when to harvest, etc. Um, but also, as many of you know, um, land rights and land tenure arrangements in Africa can be very opaque and often very complex, and information on land tenure um, is either not readily, readily available or um, geospatial data doesn't match um, records that are existing in paper format. So digitalization can come in here and really greatly facilitate, for example, through the use of mobile phones or drones, um, information on land rights and land tenure, facilitate um, new record holding, but also the design of land tenure arrangements, um, and thereby enable farmers to have better access to land, but also to use land as collateral when applying for credits, for example, at banks. Um, and there is a example of such a program that has worked very effectively in Tanzania. Then at the input stage, um, so that's probably one of the um, very active areas and where you see digitalization. So um, at this stage, um, digital tools and technologies can really help farmers um, access um, more easily and readily access finance and establish their credit worthiness. Um, so some technologies such as blockchain, for example, can allow farmers to build a credit history and a credit profile, which in the end makes them more bankable, um, hence allowing them to access smaller or larger loans. Um, then there are startups such as Hello Tractor, for example, I briefly mentioned them before. Um, they facilitate a greater access to agricultural tools, technologies, and machinery. So in a context where the acquisition of machinery is often um, still out of reach for smallholder farmers, um, hiring services such as Hello Tractor um, greatly facilitate smallholders' yeah, work. And um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating actually to see how many um, startups led by young African entrepreneurs in the space around inputs are mushrooming um, across the continent at the moment. So I mentioned Hello Tractor um, and Farm Crowdy and Farm Drive, but there's others such as iProcure or MyAgro um, some of you may have come across. Um, then at the production stage, um, there are various digital services and tools that help farmers um, increase their production more sustainably. Um, I just very briefly want to go into precision farming. Um, so there are various um, tools out there that can help farmers um, plan more accurate, accurately. So um, with precision farming, no alarm. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it helps them plan um, and decide um, where to apply um, inputs in a more targeted way. So for example, fertilizers or water. Um, but also you may find digital extension services um, and tools and technologies that provide um, advice on pest and disease management um, through yeah, text messages, for example. 
and um, David Hong is here in the audience. David used to work for One Acre Fund for many years, so maybe later in the discussion, um, it'd be great to hear um, a little bit how One, a One Acre Fund has been using um, technologies in their bundles. Um, now, very important post-harvest losses. Um, so estimates still indicate that about half of fresh fruit and vegetables um, in Africa are wasted and lost, and about half of that is lost at post-harvest stage and processing. So this is where digital technologies and tools can come in to dramatically improve um, information on market and prices, transport and storage facilities. So um, if pro um, farmers are um, provided with more accurate information on prices, for example, um, they will be in a better position to decide when they want to sell their produce, where and what price. Um, so this helps reduce post-harvest losses and also benefits farmers um, financially. There's very briefly one startup that I want to talk about. Um, it's called Twiga Foods. Uh, that was established in 2014 in Kenya and links small fruit and vegetable farmers with small <coughs> medium-sized vendors in urban areas. And Twiga uses um, a cashless platform that allows them to offer higher prices to farmers, guaranteed markets, but um, also a guaranteed supply to vendors. Um, they use a blockchain technology, which essentially allows smaller farmers to build a credit history, and like I mentioned earlier, um, hence become more bankable um, and allow them to apply for loans and other financial services. And then finally, um, and I'm sure many colleagues here at IFPRI have been looking into that, um, digital technologies also have a role to play for improving dietary outcomes and nutrition. Um, so there are various initiatives, such as M-Nutrition, for example. Um, I don't think I have the time to go into detail. Um, but um, yeah, digital services are increasingly used to help um, women and um, heads of households to improve nutrition outcomes. But blockchain technology can also be used to um, ensure or improve food safety and um, help track um, where agricultural produce and livestock products are coming from. Um, so with everything, um, there's lots of opportunities and benefits, um, but yeah, like with everything, there's also risks and limitations that countries need to be at bear in mind when devising their national agricultural digitalization strategies. And very broadly, limitations can be categorized under accessibility and under cost and content. So in terms of accessibility, we have concerns around last-mile infrastructure provision, such as electricity, connection to the most remote areas and villages, um, but then also around digital literacy. So um, how, how do you actually use the device? How do you understand the information and process the information that you receive? In terms of cost and content, um, the majority of people in developing countries still cite um, the cost of handsets as a major barrier to uptake of digitalization. Um, and then, of course, it's absolutely essential that the information that is being provided through those digital services um, is locally adapted, so it's actually useful and um, can be yeah, applied to farmers' local needs and contexts. Um, on the risk side, and I think Farwood might be addressing some of those issues um, in his presentation, um, there are, just like in Europe and in the US, concerns over how data is being used. Um, so there's an opportunity now for countries to really think this through, how is the data that farmers 
provide through digital technologies um, used at a later stage and what can be done through regulation um, to prevent um, potential challenges and problems. Um, then IP rights, um, I think often it is argued that over the short run it's beneficial for the developing countries to have a more flexible um, approach to IP rights, um, but especially now with so many smaller startups um, yeah, emerging on the African continent in this space, um, it might be beneficial to take a more flexible approach initially. And then finally, um, automation and um, computerization can lead to unemployment um, potentially. So again, there does need to be thought through what does it mean if agriculture becomes more automated and how does this not come at the expense of um, employment, particularly in rural areas. And here my last slide. Um, so when we looked at all of this and then also at the countries that DBC will be present, we found that there are seven ingredients that make up um, an enabling digitalization environment. So while we recognize that a lot of the innovation is driven by the private sector in digitalization, um, there's a crucial role for governments to play to enable um, a flourishing private sector. One is um, regulation, like I briefly touched upon with regards to employment and data privacy and rights. Um, we need innovative fiscal measures and mechanisms. Um, then a lot of attention has to be paid to improving digital literacy and skill development. Um, yeah, how to use devices, how to process and understand information. So not only for farmers, but also for governments, for example, who get a lot of data um, from the field, what can they do, how can it be used to help them inform and design better policies. Um, a focus on R&D, um, digital infrastructure, like I mentioned earlier, and then very importantly, more innovation and information hubs um, where young entrepreneurs can come together, generate new ideas and solutions, and finally, um, South-South cooperation. So thank you very much, and on this note, hand over to the VC. Okay, good morning. Um, before, I, before I continue, I, I want to give a shout out to my dear brother, um, Usman Badian. Uh, I call him Senegal's famous son. Um, it's, it's a pleasure being here on your home turf. Um, thank, you. thank you very much. Now, I'm going to talk about seven countries in this report um, that we highlighted. And <clears throat> within the report, what we, what we looked at were countries that appeared to create the right enabling environment uh, for agriculture to thrive, but also had high, um, scored high on the mobile connectivity index. So they were doing well on ICT penetration, but also doing well in creating the, uh, the enabling environment for agribusinesses to thrive. Uh, of course, well, it's, it's my firm opinion that the future of, of, of Africa, uh, as far as the agriculture sector is concerned, is an agribusiness. Globally speaking, you know, the global GDP is about $80 trillion. And globally, um, agriculture and food systems account for about $8 trillion. So about 10% of glo global GDP is agriculture and food systems. So I'm going to give you some um, examples of, of what's going on in agribusinesses uh, in these countries. Now, five of these countries, as you can, okay, so. I might also have to learn. All right, there we go. <laughs> yeah, I needed to do this. Uh, so five of these countries um, appear firmly 
in in the in the top uh, you know top top right uh, corner of, of this matrix. Two countries, however, uh, Rwanda and Senegal, uh, appear to be accelerating towards the same the same position. And so we, in addition to the five countries, uh, we then include uh, Rwanda and Senegal. So the seven countries uh, we have: Morocco, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, Ghana, Nigeria, Rwanda, uh, and Kenya. Um, now, okay, this works. Now, so from these seven countries, what are the lessons we can sort of distill? Well, what's 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 really working there? Um, we've we've grouped these lessons um, in, in buckets of innovations, innovations at the institutional level, at the policy level, program and intervention level. And then, of course, tax measures, digital infrastructure, uh, platform development, e-administration, digital literacy, uh, and private sector engagement. Very important. So Cote d'Ivoire, what have they done? Uh, I'll just pick one or two examples, of course. Um, lots more lessons to be, um, to be teased out from the, from the reports themselves. Uh, CocoLink is, is one example of, of an innovation um, that uh, started in Cote d'Ivoire and in Ghana. It was set up or developed by Hershey, uh, the, the chocolate company or the confectionery company. Uh, and CocoLink started as a voice and SMS uh, product. It's evolved now um, in Ghana uh, as a mobile app. So if, if you have an Android, I'm not sure if it's on the, um, what's the Apple store called? App Store. App Store. App Store. I'm not sure if, if, if there's an Apple version, but the, the, the cool kids use Android anyway. So, um, <laughs> so the, the, there's an app now, and it, it's evolved. So what, 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 what CocoLink does is it's a peer-to-peer -peer learning um, uh, connection where farmers can learn from each other and access extension services, market price information, weather information, etc. Um, now, in addition to this, uh, the, the um, Ivorian government then created VAT exemptions for the ICT sector to tease out this nascent, uh, you know, uh, sector, subsector of the economy uh, to stimulate demand for the products, for the services, for investments, etc. And that's led to an increase in the adoption of uh, ICT technologies right across the board, including, of course, the agriculture sector. Um, in as of, I think, last year, about 70% of all the cocoa uh, sold in Cote d'Ivoire uh, was via an electronic auction system. Of course, we, we know middle of this year, uh, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire uh, agreed on a price floor uh, for cocoa. I think it's about $2,600 a ton. Does anyone know? No? Okay. We'll just move on. Um, now, speaking of, of, of Ghana... Uh, of course, I'd, I'd mentioned uh, Cote d'Ivoire uh, prioritizing uh, two, two major value chains, coffee and cocoa. In Ghana, we, we looked at the cocoa sector as well. Uh, the national, Ghana has a national ICT uh, strategy. It also, uh, in 2012, they developed a Data Protection Act. Very important. I mean, when we talk about uh, the growth of, of data and the use of big data and penetration and ca uh, use cases, et cetera, one of the big concerns uh, that practitioners raise is data protection. Uh, so Ghana has created a robust regulatory environment around the protection of user uh, information and uh, how companies access and store uh, this information. Uh, the government has also uh, liberalized quite a lot um, the, the um, 
registration process for ICT companies, so you have a proliferation of uh, startups, ESOCO, for example, working uh, in the agribusiness space in Ghana. Kenya, where I live, uh, of course, you know, Catherine already mentioned M-Pesa. I, I think you, you cannot just, you can't talk about Kenya and agriculture without mentioning M-Pesa. However, M-Pesa is a, a direct result of macro experiments um, with very um, free regulatory uh, enabling environments. We say form follows function. Um, the bureaucracy that currently exists in the ITC, uh, ICT sector in Kenya probably would not have allowed uh, M-Pesa to thrive if, if it had been in place right now. However, um, we're glad that it, it, it has because it's shown that innovation can happen at the corporate level and it can also happen at the public uh, policy level. So governments have a lot to learn from what Kenya did uh, to enable Safaricom uh, try out the M-Pesa mobile payment system. And of course, that has a direct impact on the growth of uh, agriculture and agribusinesses uh, in Kenya. In Morocco, uh, the government has ambitious plans to be uh, an emerging economy uh, by 2020, which is next year. Uh, so they have the Digital Morocco Plan. Uh, the government's investing heavily in an ICT uh, backbone, infrastructure backbone. Uh, the government also works on the uh, virtual network for advisory services uh, for smallholder farmers. So farmers also have access through their feature phones, uh, access to weather information, market price information, uh, agronomy, etc. And the country also developed a digital soil ma uh, soils map that's integrated into this advisory service. And so farmers have access to uh, the network of um, information in that galaxy of advisories. Of course, the government's also invested in um, their own, launching their own satellites and um, fiber optic backbone uh, to improve the penetration of broadband access across the country. Nigeria, well, this is my country. Um, <clears throat> Okay, I'll give you one example from Nigeria. In Nigeria, uh, between 2011 and 2015, the country set up what, what was a digital uh, database for smallholder farmers. Um, by 2015, about two, 12 and a half million smallholder farmers were on this platform, and there had been about between 8 to 10 million unique transactions. Um, and what this digital platform did was transform, radical, uh, radically transform uh, the input subsidy um, program in Nigeria. It went from a program that was about 11% efficient to 91% in a space of three years. Um, so smallholder farmers were registered on a database, agro-dealers were registered, input suppliers, financial services providers, and so that platform was a market discovery mechanism because now uh, service providers knew the size of their of their uh, of the market and where the clients were, and so that created the the necessary stimulus uh, for for that e uh, that ecosystem to thrive. Um, Senegal, Senegal is working uh, to pursue uh, um, wide coverage of uh, 4G across the country. But one of the innovations that the Senegalese government's done is invest heavily in digitizing government and uh, public sector services. Uh, they have a development fund that provides access to ICT services for every uh, government uh, entity that requires it. In addition, uh, they then have, of course, the, the Protection uh, of Personal Data uh, Commission, uh, which was set up in 2008, and the Universal Service Law. So from the public, from the public policy uh, perspective, uh, the Senegalese government's working very hard uh, to ensure that 
they bring uh, the provision of public services, well, I don't want to say to the 21st century, they digitize the provision of public services, but also ensure that the dividends of these public services are then accessible to, to, to the to wider public. Um, Rwanda. Rwanda's done a fascinating, um, uh, or they've recorded um, impressive uh, achievements in uh, 3G penetration across the country. 93% uh, of the country has 3G coverage in Rwanda. And of course, the country is also investing heavily in uh, fiber optic backbone across the country. Um, I mean, it, 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 go, it goes without saying. Uh, the, the, the government of, of Rwanda have also invested in setting up uh, ICT hubs. And one example, of course, um, was the, the move of Andela uh, to, to Rwanda. I don't know if, if you follow the news in, in the tech space, but Andela is a startup that works in the services sector and they outsource um, uh, digital services and they found Rwanda to be a conducive home for them. Uh, Rwanda, of course, has also created the uh, enabling environment for um, tertiary institutions to come and build their, their, their facilities there. So you have the Africa Leadership University, ALU, uh, you also have the Carnegie Mellon uh, University setting up their campus in Rwanda. So in the public, uh, from the public policy perspective, there's a lot that the government uh, of Rwanda has done to ensure that they create that enabling environment for the, for the ecosystems to, to grow. So what are our recommendations? Um, based on these case studies, we feel we need smart regulatory environments that promote the development and confident use of digital technologies and services and limit the risks strengthening uh, local skills development and digital literacy training uh, for populations to ensure that these experiments continue and we create a healthy, not just a healthy startup community, but a healthy use case uh, for these technologies. Um, introducing the right fiscal incentives to drive uh, digital innovation. So of course we've mentioned uh, tax incentives, uh, uh, VAT, etc. But also governments can create uh, additional uh, fiscal incentives to ensure that the digital ecosystems uh, can set up a shop in their countries and thrive and grow. Um, finally, its uh, last two, two points would be investing and in supportive last mile infrastructure to bridge that digital divide. Uh, so it's not enough to have these digital hotspots in the capital cities. They really need to spread around the country uh, because with them they're conduits for prosperity. So you, you don't really want to concentrate all the infrastructure and innovation in, in, in uh, minute locations uh, in the countries or pockets ac across the country. And finally, it's uh, the development of digital innovation hubs. Um, in the news, I believe it was September, um, we have the, the CC hub uh, in Nigeria acquired the iHub in Kenya for an undisclosed fee. And that, you know, is something to keep an eye out for, for, for those who are, again, in the tech news or tech space. Uh, you might want to look that up. Um, because what that does now is create a bridge between East and West Africa. Um, ideologically, philosophically, technologically, there is now no distance between East and West Africa. So it's ideas spreading and, you know, diffusing at the sound of thought. Um, and with this, I believe, uh, come to the end of our presentation, uh, I'll hand it over. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. And maybe, maybe there are some connected from places where it's good afternoon or good evening. <laughs> 
Uh, it's a pleasure to join this this discussion from the platform of, of a project I've been uh, co-leading at the World Bank called Enabling the Business of Agriculture. Already a reference from the VC on it, so it's nice to, to connect with that. I, I thought maybe before uh, focusing on what I'm going to call it EBA, it's a lot shorter, what EBA has done in this realm, I wanted to take a step back and talk a little bit about the, the project and, and how it has uh, approached the whole issue of an enabling environment in agribusiness. And, you know, I'm just going to go over this slide very quickly. Uh, the point here is for, for the development outcomes, the intended development outcomes, there are numerous studies that show that a lot more funding has to be mobilized, right? And the, the funding that can be mobilized from the public sector or from donors uh, is very limited. Um, so there's a large horizon, there's great potential in being able to mobilize the private sector. And the conditions that the private sector needs to be able to mobilize those funds, again, gearing towards development outcomes, is, is critical. So when we talk about the enabling environment, we're really talking about all these elements or dimensions that come together and facilitate the mobilization of private sector investment, private sector performance. These dimensions are several. Here are a few. There are many more. Uh, policies, institutions, support services. But one of them is a regulatory framework. And this is the area or this is the dimension that EBA and our program and EBA has decided to focus on. And we thought, what could we do to develop measurements, develop a barometer or perhaps a dashboard that allows us to quickly assess in a very quantitative manner, uh, synthetic measurements, assess what's happening in the regulatory environment for agribusiness in different countries. We were interested in uh, measuring areas that besides being able to be measured, measured, because there's many areas that's difficult to measure, can be measured in a comparative way, meaning you can measure them in the same way in Latin America or Africa or Asia, and that are ultimately also actionable. So measurements that the government, this evidence is provided to government and policymakers, and they can immediately address the issues that these measurements raise. So we started with this, this initiative a few years back, it was actually it was a, in response to a call of the G8 of developing a sort of doing business in agriculture index. We started scaling up the number of countries where we identified what are some of the issues that could be measured, what are some of the issues where there's variability between countries, where there's lessons learned that can be transferred between country and country, and, and again, where there are critical areas of re, where reform can take place. And, our latest report was actually launched just uh, a month ago. This is a, we have a hard copy. Um, and we've scaled up in this report to 101 countries. Now, the topics, I'm going to first talk about the 2017 report, which was the previous report. The topics that we cover are here, right? We had eight topics on the left-hand side. For each of these topics, we looked at different areas and issues, and we were able to formulate a score for each of those topics. We included two other topics that we consider cross-cutting. We haven't scored them, but we've provided an analysis on them. 
because they're derived from the other areas. And you can see amongst these eight topics and scores, one of them is ICT. Um, and naturally, these scores or the areas that we look at within these scores affect uh, different uh, value chain actors or value chain actors at different points along the chain. So naturally, there are some areas such as seed that are more relevant to suppliers and farmers. Uh, but then there might be other areas such as uh, ICT or finance that are relevant all across the chain. Now, what did we focus on in the 2017 report? I mean, there is potential to, to focus a number of areas, but we thought that the critical issue here was the provision of mobile services because of the lack of connectivity of so many people in rural areas, particularly in developing regions. What are the regulations that underpin the provision of mobile services in remote and rural areas? Right? And that's what we decided to focus on. And, and this whole scoring is based on laws and regulations for licensing of mobile operators, spectrum management, infrastructure sharing. So we identified a number of good practices, regulatory good practices, that again facilitate mobile operators to extend their service in rural areas and therefore foster uh, access to, to mobile services. And this is really just a summary of, uh, of the good practices we were assessing countries for, making sure there's a general authorization regime in place, looking at uh, the costs of, of the um, regimes, the authorization regimes, the licensing regimes, the validity of them. You know, there might be a country such as Ethiopia where actually the validity of the licensing regime is one year, right? Whereas in other African countries, it might be 15 or 20 years. What about renewing, the, the re renewal conditions? Uh, how accessible are they? How easy are they? Um, then there's issues related to uh, digital dividend bans, um, low frequency spectrum. Are they allocated to mobile operators? Because this, again, opens the market, the telecommunications market, and again, fosters mobile operators being able to move into the rural space. Uh, voluntary spectrum trading, also passive and active infrastructure sharing. So, I mean, I won't go into too much technical detail. The issue here is that we identified a number of good practices, and these are the ones that we started assessing in this set of countries, which they're in different colors because it just shows how we started scaling up from one report to another. But ultimately, this here are the 101 countries where we cover in the last report. Now, the 2017 indicator was only for 62 countries. So those scores we have for 62 countries. But I'll tell you why we don't have those scores for the 2019 report. Now, um, the 2017 results, perhaps predictable, but always good to see that if you divide the countries that we covered into these three categories of urbanized, transforming, and agriculture-based, um, agriculture-based countries typically have uh, weaker or more limiting regulatory frameworks for mobile operators to move into the rural space. If we take our, the 62 countries that we, that we covered, this is how they uh, range regionally. I don't know if the previous speakers knows I can do this. Yeah. Huh? 
Impressive, no? So, uh, <laughs> so here on the right side, we have the African countries. Uh, you see there are some that have, a, that have a higher score, some that have lower, but you get a sense of how they compare to, to other regions. This is how it actually, if you take the 62 countries, you put them in order. Uh, this is what you have. This is the full range of 62 countries, but I've uh, highlighted in yellow the African countries. You have Kenya, which is the highest performing, highest scoring country, uh, and then a country such as Ethiopia. Here, which has the lowest score. But there's quite a range. So besides Africa being able to learn from other countries or to look at other countries' experience in setting up these regulations, there's also a lot of inter-regional or intra-regional uh, learning that can, be, that can be done there. And this is also something perhaps different but related. We also see the number of measures in place that facilitates access to information. And uh, you can see here a glaring uh, result that out of the 21 measures that we look for, Sub-Saharan Africa has the uh, smallest number of them, so six of them in place, which means that it makes access to information very difficult for the private sector. Um, some of the results here, again, there's a piece missing, oh, there it is. Um, general authorization regime, which is a good practice. Only 10 of the 62 countries have them, none of them in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. 39% uh, of the countries studied, none of them in sub-Saharan Africa, actually assigned the digital dividend to mobile operators, also considered a good practice that facilitates um, provision of services in rural sector. 27% of the countries, none in low-income countries, none in sub-Saharan Africa, also allow voluntary spectrum trading to mobile operators. So a lot of potential good practices that could be implemented there. Um, these numbers, these scores, are correlated with uh, mobile penetration, market uh, penetration, and also with the mobile connectivity index. We saw that in Debussy's slide. The 2019 indicators, we've taken a subset of what we did in 2017 and decided to shape indicators in those. And I wanted to highlight the fact that we're not including indicators. We haven't included indicators in ICT this time. What we do have, however, is we've chosen eight topics that are particularly uh, relevant to farmers that where we find significant variability between country and country, and we focused on indicators on that. And what we do provide in ICT is data. So all the data that we collected in 2017 is also available in 2019, but we just haven't uh, decided not to translate them in, into indicators for now. Um, feel free to, to visit the website, see the scores of 2017, see the data of 2019. One of the questions that comes up is how are we going to go forward? The idea is to continue having these reports on a biannual basis. The question comes up, should we, should we not include ICT as we move forward? Are we focusing on the right aspects or regulatory elements when it comes to ICT? Uh, the, the issues raised by Katrine, privacy protection, intellectual property, they also have regulatory underpinnings. We haven't ventured into that territory yet. 
is at an area of interest where there is significant various variance. It does have implications for private sector investment in that area. Does it have an impact? Is there uh, potential for reform that will ultimately um, that will ultimately affect the provision of, of uh, digital technology to the target population here? Um, so with that, uh, just a quick overview of what EBA does and how it uh, relates to the topic that we have on the table today. If I can have the panel join us up here at the front and uh, speak to a Q&A. &A. We've got a really decent audience. And, and I think, we'll see we have people online as well. Great. So. Uh, why don't we start from the floor here and take a, a, a couple of questions. Uh, let's aggregate uh, three or four. Turn it over to Thomas. Oh, sorry. We have to use the mics. <laughs> uh, let's take uh, three or four questions from the floor, aggregate them, pitch it back to the panel, uh, and then after that round, we'll go to online questions if there are any. Uh, let's start with uh, John McDermott. Uh, please do introduce yourself. Um, John McDermott, I'm from IFPRI, I'm the Director of the Agriculture for Nutrition and Health Program. I want to ask more about how we link the supply side with the demand side with digital technologies, and it wasn't really covered in depth. We hear a lot about agricultural transformation, but not food system transformation. So what are the opportunities for using more demand side information on what consumers are looking at at markets and food environments and then linking that back to the agricultural system. So your thoughts on that, um, including how it enabling the food system rather than just agribusiness. Excellent. Another question. Um, more of a McLean Nielsen Research Foundation. Thank you very much for really wonderful presentations. I'm wondering about the challenges of being able to address data curation and particularly data quality when data are feeding into decision support tools, whether this is at the firm level or at a more macro government level, how, how you see that evolving. Are there best practices in some of the countries that you've looked at? Excellent. Another question from the floor? Why don't we pitch those two back to the panel and you can think of some more while we're at it. Uh, Debisi, let's start with you at the far end. Sure, why not? Um, well, uh, John, thank you very much for the, for the question. Um, so one example of, of what's, what's going on, I think right now we're, 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 in a, we're in a season of experimentation, lots of experiments going on in the marketplace. Uh, Katrin mentioned uh, the, the work that Twiga Foods uh, is currently undertaking. Uh, just last month, Twiga raised, I think in their Series B funding, $10 million. Goldman Sachs invested in, in Twiga's business uh, because they're creating platforms that discover demand and connecting that to the research proposition. So another example of what we're doing now is in Uganda, um, SIAT, well, I, I've got to pitch SIAT, right? So, so SIAT's working with uh, MasterCard, uh, the MasterCard Farmer Network, uh, for those who are interested. Uh, it's a digital platform, an end-to-end -end digital platform, all the way from, from producer to consumer, but even uh, a step further, informing the science. And so what are the right varieties that the market is demanding? And so the MasterCard Farming Network not just brings farmers onto the platform, but it brings producers, um, finance service providers, insurance brokers, et cetera. 
Um, so that is uh, another digital innovation that is trying to uh, improve the food system. You know, improving the quality of food that we consume. Of course, we're we're trying to ensure that food systems deliver on improved nutrition outcomes. So, how do we filter uh, or use these digital platforms to ensure that healthier uh, varieties of food filter through uh, the food system? One example is uh, the Mastercard Farmer Network in Uganda. Um, yeah, I wanted to address the the question on data quality. Um, so. In the work we did for our report, um, I don't recall coming across best practice, but we um, looked into some of the research, and I think, like I mentioned earlier, um, the, the training and the skill development is not only meant for farmers or value chain actors. Um, we also need training and skill development for those people who, in the end, use the data to develop and design policies. So that can open up entire new opportunities also for employment, so people who understand the data, who can filter and decide um, which data is useful, um, which, what is good data, which can be eventually used to um, inform and design policies. So I think the training and skill development has to touch on that area as well. And um, new jobs generated within ministries or departments or um, within extension service systems, I don't know where that would sit. Um, but these are yeah, very important points. Perhaps just uh, to say that the issues around data, often when they come up, is not about quality, it's more about privacy issues, uh, it's more about um, uh, protection um, uh, and um, who owns the data and things like that. Because most of the data is proprietary data, right? It's not like, you know, um, uh, public sector data that we use for research, but it is in terms of quantity of sales, who producing them, where they live, uh, you know, in which conditions. Those are being uh, curated and generated and gathered by the suppliers. But what do they do with it? Who owns it? Those, those are the kind of questions that are, that are coming up uh, more often. And you see in most of these countries now, they're struggling with um, um, digital uh, data rights and, and things like that. So that's where we see countries moving and, and doing something uh, innovative, or at least uh, rising up to global standards. Uh, in terms of quality, probably more for the research community uh, is quality an issue. Uh, for the business and commercial uh, 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 ecosystem, the issue is about protection, ownership, and, and privacy uh, of data. And there's still there's, there's a while, uh, quite a way to go, but some countries uh, do have the laws in place. Enforcement is a different issue. Control uh, is a different issue. And uh, just to add on, uh, I think the, the issue raised by John is a very important one. I mean, we're aware that uh, about half a trillion dollars in public sector funds are going into uh, agriculture and food systems, uh, plus another mil trillion and a half from the private sector. You know, and, and the outcome is of you know, food systems that are <coughs> Producing, but that have serious defects. You know, they have a bunch of issues to, in terms of efficiency, in terms of uh, sustainability. So, the question is, how can we leverage those funds, two trillion funds or so, uh, to enable you know, more more efficient food systems and food systems that are more sustainable? And we've been thinking uh, about this and. 
what are the what are the elements that underpin these food systems? As I had mentioned earlier, this whole enabling, either private sector investment or in this case food systems, it has a number of dimensions. So perhaps one of the question is, are those dimensions regulatory, or are there other dimensions? If there are other dimensions, how could we set out to to identify them and measure them? and provide evidence for them to, to foster kind of uh, policy making around this evidence, enabling the food system. So a lot of thinking actually taking place around that, that reflects the importance of the, of the issue you raise. I'm not sure it will fall into the regulatory dimension, um, but, but certainly it is an enabling environment issue and we're looking to strengthen that. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing, uh, John, I think uh, here, um, the issue is content, right? Um, the Arctic services, uh, what is the content and how relevant is it in connecting supply and demand? Uh, then the other dimension is scale. Uh, you would find uh, in a given value chain for a given segment, perhaps a variety of apps that may be connecting demand and supply, but they're not, uh, you know, operate uh, um, operable at the value chain level or in different geographies. So uh, the uh, generic problem you have with uh, digitalization of agricultural value chains, especially in Africa, is that you have a lot of great apps, but they're very, very specific. Uh, and therefore, linking demand in broader terms to supply in broader terms will require massive transformative platforms, just like M-Pesa uh, revolutionized linking uh, uh, financial transactions from both ends. Uh, we haven't had that yet. Uh, so it's kind of uh, an Amazon of, of agriculture, agribusiness, or a Jumia, uh, for those who are familiar with uh, the platforms in Africa. So how do we get to scale? It doesn't have to be one, it doesn't have to be two, but how do you get to scale where uh, suppliers and uh, those who demand uh, the goods around agribusiness value chain have one place where they can meet? Uh, at, at least a critical level. And that is a matter of infrastructure, of platforms, not just of uh, having apps that works and having active companies that can deliver those services. So scale is a real issue. Content is a real issue. Thank you. Barbara Kramer. Um, I'm Barbara Kramer. I'm here with IFPRI. Um, everybody these days has an app. <laughs> Um, and often focused on the producer side. And I get emails almost every month from requests of people saying, oh, we're developing an app and we would love to work with you. And really something that I'm struggling with is how to identify those apps that have the content that are really promising and that are really worth for us to work with and invest in. Um, and how to yeah how to do that screening and and is that a role that the regulators could play or is that a role that researchers play and how to facilitate this process thank you lucy there are a couple of questions online if you'd like to uh, share them yes um so the first one is wellington osawe from the national university of ireland galway in spite of the obvious issue of poor institutions, how do we create the framework to nudging African government to leverage on the progress made by small agriculture startups to transform the sector? Second one is Oyewale Abio 
from the International Institute of Tropical Agriculture and also a co-founder of a startup working on an integrated digital solution for dairy farmers in Nigeria. For the digital extension service, what is your advice for a startup operating among farmers with 40% farmers with smartphones and 60% with normal phones? What is the experience from SMS? Is it a two-way communication? Additionally, what is an example of an application on digital extension? And the last one is John Kurad, Executive Vice President at the Hunger Project. What are the roles of the sub-regional bodies, such as the Economic Community of West African States and Southern African Development Community in accelerating digital technologies? Thank you. All right, that gives us a handful to answer. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start from you. Move back through the panel. All right. Uh, quite honestly, is, is very little that I, I think I can address from my angle. But uh, you know, the, the issue of the apps. In fact, we were thinking when we started looking into ICT and what are some of the regulatory underpinnings. Um, there aren't very strong regulatory underpinnings for for app. Right. It's it's innovation. Uh, I mean, uh, there is there is nothing you can do to regulate the, the innovation. Let's say that takes place in that. Now, the, the issue um, that we've been talking about, about uh, privacy, intellectual property, uh, you know, some regulations around that could have implication for apps, uh, but I'm not sure that it's going to be one of the main you know, issues to say how do we select or how do we foster uh, uh, innovation around that. Um, there was a question. Let me see the second one. Oh, smallholder. So you know, w one of the things related to the second question is that uh, the whole intention of, of shaping these indicators, and I haven't had the chance to talk about this, is you know th the degree to which it really veers the attention of governments and policymakers to providing the right conditions. Right. I mean, when you develop a global bench benchmarking tools such as Doing Business did uh, you know, 15 years ago and EBA is doing now, it's incredible the uptake that it has at the government level, right? Um, having, being able to put in one sheet the measurements of a country and comparing them with other countries, neighboring countries, competing countries, it just generates such an appetite to, to improve and to change. So at least, I don't know if this is at the small, uh, uh, small operator level or the small holder level, but to the degree that we can identify measurements and uh, and present them to governments, those that make the decisions that set the framework, um, I think we will be able to have an impact on the enabling conditions for these small operators or small holders to function. So just wanted to put a word in for that. Barbara, I'm, I'm not sure we need to regulate that. Uh, we let the market decide uh, which apps would survive, right? Uh, because if you're solving somebody's problems, you're going to be paid for it and you will survive. If you're not solving anybody's problem, I'm not sure you're going to go, go very far. However, if we need regulation, is to make the playing field level uh, for startups uh, to be able to fight for their market share vis-a-vis -vis all the established uh, companies and things like that. But I think the more dynamic the ecosystem, the better it is. Uh, people who go to bed thinking about issues and wake up in the morning and work on them probably are in a better position to figure out what else to do. So that would be probably my thinking about that. So my concern about regulation is opening 
Dodo as wide as possible uh, and then see who, who comes in. Uh, in terms of what can you do uh, in the context of limited institutional uh, capacity uh, of, of governments to uh, promote digital uh, um, uh, services, I, I think if, if you uh, looked at all the red subtitles of the slides uh, that uh, Debussy uh, was going through, you'll see how different countries are trying to solve the problem differently. Uh, you'll see Senegal focusing more on universal access with a dedicated fund and spreading the service as wide as they can, uh, which creates a demand for digital services. Uh, you see a country like Ghana focusing on um, inclusivity, uh, using local languages, uh, moving into the rural areas uh, to make digital content much more relevant, uh, to responsive to people's uh, issues, and therefore creating demand again uh, for digital services. Uh, you see a country like Nigeria focusing more on local manufacturing, on capacity and content, uh, which also expand uh, demand uh, for, for the services. Morocco uh, looking at infrastructure for rich and scale. Uh, Rwanda going broad, strategic. So. Every country has found a way of doing that. Cote d'Ivoire, for that matter, just focusing on two specific big sectors and then zeroing on, on that. So uh, whatever the country's institutional context might be, they might find useful, they might find very useful lessons uh, looking at uh, what all those different uh, folks are doing. Now on the uh, uh, content and SMS vis-a-vis uh, 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 -vis, uh, uh, digital content that is accessible to smartphones, I don't think uh, most professionals in this area are thinking about one way of delivering digital content. Uh, they're thinking about uh, voice, they're thinking about SMS, uh, they're thinking about uh, using pictures and uh, uh, you know, uh, tactile of uh, touch phones. So there are a lot of different ways they're thinking about uh, getting content. So it's not going to be one. Uh, but it's a bundle of them that will allow you to, to reach uh, most folks uh, on the ground. Now, in terms of examples, um, if you would download the, the report, probably you'll see uh, several of them in the case studies toward the end of the report. Thank you. Um, I'd like to add um, on the question of small agriculture startups um, and how governments um, yeah, can collaborate more effectively. So. Um, yeah, Usman, you were mentioning what some of the countries are doing, and I think Kenya and Nigeria, for example, stand really out as countries that enable the flourishing um, entrepreneurial environment for startups to, to experiment, to succeed, to fail. And um, I think there's a big opportunity, especially with digitalization in, in the agricultural space, um, to embrace public-private partnerships, um, to have innovation and information hubs where small startups can experiment, where they can fail, where they can um, try out different ideas. Um, so to really, yeah, allow the private sector to leverage its innovative capacities. So there's a role to play for government, but um, in particular in this area, um, I think it would be a, a mistake to, yeah, to limit it to um, just big interventions by the private sector, but to really harness the um, innovative um, capacities that are coming out of young people and young entrepreneurs. Thanks, Catherine. Um, so I, I'm going to sort of respond across uh, the questions. Um, so two repositories of uh, for where you could get good ideas on the better apps, because there's a proliferation of apps out there, as, as you can tell. Um, so the first 
course, again, I'm with Siat, and we're at IFPRI, so we have to talk about the CGIR Big Data Platform. Uh, the Big Data Platform was co-convened uh, 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 by Siat and IFPRI. Um, they've held within the context of the, is this, it's still, okay. Uh, in the context of the Big Data Platform, we have the Inspire Challenge. Uh, there are three, three objectives for the Big Data uh, Platform. It's to convene, organize, and inspire. Now, in, in the context of the Inspire, um, Inspire uh, objective of the Big Data Platform, we, we hold an annual convention. Um, this year, it was uh, in Hyderabad at ICRISAT. Uh, last year was, uh, I believe, at ICRAF um, in Nairobi. And the year before was at SIAT in Colombia. Um, and each year, we, we encourage uh, the collaboration of CGIR centers with the private sector. So you have a healthy ecosystem there of you know, um, the, the startups, the better ideas. I suppose if you could filter the winners, then that, that's an easy uh, subgroup sub that, that tells you, you know, what the better apps are and where the market demand is. But again, it's early days. We're three years into the Inspire Challenge. Who knows uh, where the real uh, commercial demand will come from? Uh, another example is the Pitch Agrihack program of CTA. Now, CTA is the Technical Center for Agriculture uh, based at Wageningen University. Um, so every year at the uh, AGRF, uh, they hold the Pitch Agrihack. Uh, I was a judge on, uh, for, this year's, uh, for this year's event. Lots of amazing uh, ideas are coming out from that. Um, again, I think it's still early days, but at least you have um, a portfolio of, of the, the more commercially focused uh, apps. Uh, because the judges, uh, the judges who judge these apps look at not just the design, the content, but also the market viabilities uh, of, of uh, and the value proposition of, uh, that these apps provide. Now, uh, how do we, I think I, I sort of wrote down, how do we nudge governments uh, to adopt the more, um, the, better, the better policies, shall we say? Well, Usman, I mean, you talked about the, the MAMO forum. So that's, that's, the, that's the focus of the MAMO forum. And what we do is every year, uh, uh, twice a year, we convene uh, a high-level forum of ministers of uh, agriculture and uh, allied sectors um, with, with the support of the highest levels of governments. In most cases, we have vice presidents, prime ministers, etc., uh, attending. And what we're doing, the objective of, of, of the MAMO Forum is to ensure that the lessons uh, from, from, from the reports that, that the panel produces can be distilled in bite-sized chunks for uh, senior members of government to understand. Of course, we're trying to create a race to the top. Um, we want people to be impressed and inspired by what their fellow uh, neighboring countries are doing and then adopt uh, practices that will ensure that they can you know, also benefit uh, in, in this prosperity narrative. Um, now, finally, uh, there was a question on digital extension services and uh, an app for um, I think it was livestock. Uh, one of the one of the one of the pitches for this year's pitch agrihack, I believe, was Jaguza, G A G U J A G U Z A. Uh, so if you can look that up, or you go to the pitch agrihack website, you will find the apps on on um, livestock extension services, etc. So lots of ideas out there, and lots of uh, good ones uh, for that matter. I think you know. It's, it's, again, it's really early days. As Usman said, the deployment of extension services, we're going to have to get creative. Uh, we're using USSD, we're using SMS, text messages, uh, we're using voice, we're using video, we're using pictures. Uh, but one of the, one of the big 
lessons we, we're, we're learning from extension services is farmers can learn from each other, or not just farmers. Um, Agribusiness entrepreneurs can learn from each other. And so uh, an agro-dealer can learn from another agro-dealer. A farmer can learn from another farmer. Um, seed uh, multiplier can learn from uh, their, their peers. Uh, and that's important because there's only so much top-down information people are willing to take because the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So you would rather take on lessons from someone who's also practicing. And so um, a lot of the peer-to-peer extension services are growing. We Farm, for example, in Kenya uh, is, is a, a good example of this. It's a peer-to-peer -peer platform, a social network for farmers, and uh, they, 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 they again uh, raised, I believe it's somewhere between 10 and 20 million dollars uh, this year. And so we're starting to see uh, commercial appetite in the investment sector, you know, to invest in these uh, uh, technology startups that are focused on extension services. So who knows what's going to happen? I mean, this is really very early days, but we're hoping that we create something vibrant and something exciting that transforms the agriculture sector, not just in Africa, but uh, also around the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other questions on the floor? One, two. Go ahead, please. Uh, we need microphones for you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nate Austin from the DFC just across the street. And it's a more personal reflection on this topic, which is if you had, say, a few million dollars to invest in this sector from either enabling infrastructure all the way to specific apps, if you want to talk about that, where would you invest in any of these countries and why? Uh, David Hong with uh, Farm Journal Foundation. Um, one question I had uh, for the panel is, what has been your experience with organizations that have um, done more work on sort of the, uh, let me just step, step back, average age of smallholder farmers is what, 50, 60 in the region, right? Really, these are, these are older generation folks. Um, asking them to use M-Pesa on a dumb phone is one thing. Asking them to use an app on a smartphone is an entirely different proposition. What has been your experience with organizations that are trying to disseminate training information to these types of farmers? All right. Um, I'd like to pitch it back to the panel. We have exactly five minutes to wrap up here. Uh, keep your responses short, if we could. Let's start with Usman yep. in the middle, and then Katrin. I will go to that last. 10% um, of the African population is older than 60. Africa is a very, very young population. I think um, the statistic we have out there saying that uh, the majority of African farmers are 50 or 60 is a fallacy. Most African farmers are around the 35. Uh, those people may be asking for the head of the household, who may be 50 or 60, but those who are farming, working on the farms, are closer to 35. Uh, and therefore, reaching out to them uh, with digital technology is the perfect thing uh, to do uh, right now. And certainly, the upcoming farmers are also uh, at that level. Uh, if I were to invest a million dollars, if I'm a private sector person, it's a different priority than if I'm a government. If I'm a government, I'll put it in infrastructure, definitely, so that I can crowd in the private sector. Um, yeah, also on that question, I think it's really difficult to choose one aspect. Um, you probably have to invest in all sorts of areas at the same time, but I would also, just like Osman, choose infrastructure if I had to choose one. It's infrastructure for me, public sector, private sector, and the input sector, either fertilizer or seed. Excellent. 
I'm no uh, technology expert, but uh, but I I'm glad that a lot of the work that we do doesn't require investment. So I think uh, <laughs> I think the infrastructure is a, is a good target area. <laughs> so everybody says infrastructure. Let me just wind this up. What about regulation? So so is digital technology and agriculture democratizing? Does it allow farmers to uh, to access not just inputs and markets for their for their commodities, but but also engage in civil society, engage in political discourse. We've seen we've seen some very frightening examples in this country of the use of digital technology to advance political uh, ends that that haven't haven't. Well, anyway, I'll stop there. Um, and in Africa, we're seeing we're seeing digital technologies, including digital technologies in rural areas that can be used for both uh, nefarious purposes, but also potentially purposes of good. Um, for every M-Pesa, there's a OneCoin example out there. And for those of you that haven't read the BBC lately, there's a great feature on, on OneCoin, which turned out to be like Bitcoin, except that it was a pyramid scheme. So, so my question is, especially when we think about these, these ecologies of apps and the lack of regulation or the weak regulation, what are we creating? Are we creating OneCoins or are we creating M-Pesa opportunities? Let's wind it up with that. Fun question. Uh, it's, it's important. I mean, you don't, you're not linking it to the investment, right? Because... Uh, Regulation is a form of investment, yeah, if you think about it. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's extremely important, but also extremely cheap. Right, so you don't need money uh, to get good regulations, right? So I, I think that uh, it's more about um, uh, understanding of how things work, um, the administrative capacity to design and to deliver and, and, and like that. So I won't go too long because I want the others to answer that. But yes, regulation is very, very important, but for me it will not be a focus for investment because it's cheap. It can be done. Um Well, I would say Perhaps we don't know what the winners will look like or who the who the, who the winners will be, but hopefully they are uh, the the agri businesses that operate in countries with the right enabling environment. I mean, that's for me is the best the best we can say. Um, yeah, I think just to add to that, um, yeah, regulation absolutely crucial, especially for issues around data privacy, like I discussed earlier. Um, at the same time, if you want the private sector um, to come in and um, small startups to flourish, then overregulating can also be dangerous. And um, I think that's just something to bear in mind. Yeah, just to finish off, uh, I won't, um, how do you say, hammer the same nail of the regulations. But, but uh, clearly, if you look at some of the examples of countries where there has been um, this sense of uh, transparency, uh, adequate management of information. You look at some European countries, you look at some Latin American countries. I think there are some very interesting examples of how regulations have been brought, brought into the picture uh, to, 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 to really enhance the role of value chain actors in, in the system using mobile apps, using uh, digital technology. So a lot of examples to learn from. Excellent. Those are all r really great responses, very thoughtful. Gives us a lot to think about for the future. And with that, I'd like to thank the panel for their comments and all of you, both online and, and here uh, in the room, uh, for taking your time out on, on this Tuesday morning to, to put some thought into these issues. Thank you all very much, and we hope to see you back here soon. Thank you.